This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. On January 1st, 1988, a pamphlet was released entitled, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. Now, what's interesting about this is that pamphlet is currently listed on Amazon. But you'd be glad to know it's out of print. I don't know why I found that absolutely hilarious, but... It's out of print. Um, Church history is littered with failed predictions about the return of Jesus. Now, what never ceases to amaze me is how so many good-thinking Christians can be so easily enticed by such farcical notions about the end of history. On the whole, Christians have been pretty good at, at keeping their fingers on the text of Scripture when it comes to matters of of, of justification, the atonement, the sufficiency of Christ, even the inerrancy of Christ. But for some reason, when it comes to talk of the end times, we have theological ADHD. We have a tendency to get suckered into buying some end time conspiracy theory. Christian leaders have been concerned about this phenomenon for centuries. John Calvin, writing in the 1500s, urged his readers to make sure they avoided being guilty of what he called excessive curiosity by investigating what the Lord has hidden. So in the strongest possible way, I want to say to you, there is a perversity about excessive curiosity in what the Lord has hidden, particularly as it relates to the end times. Now, there are a number of New Testament passages that discuss the return of Christ. There's a number of them. We're looking at just one today. We're going to do more in the near future. But the way in which we do this, I hope, will become a model for you on how you can go to those other passages that discuss the return of Christ and work through those for yourself. That's my hope. Well, let's look at this one. 1 Thessalonians 4. Get your Bibles open. We want our noses in the book. 1 Thessalonians 4. Let me give you a little background on Thessalonica, the city where this particular church is located. It was some 50 miles from Mount Olympus. Mount Olympus was the dwelling place of the Roman and Greek gods. So many of these believers in Thessalonica probably came out of that religious background where they would follow the gods of Jupiter, Apollo, Mercury, and so on. But they had been marked out to follow the true God, and their exemplary faith was spreading throughout the region, and they had become something of a model for Paul to use as an example when he writes to them. But even though the Apostle Paul could give them a glowing review, doesn't mean they didn't have questions. They had questions. Even though Paul could give them a glowing review, they still had questions. They had questions about a number of things, but one of them is taken up in the passage we're looking at today, and it concerns the death of a believer and how things would end 
and what the day of the Lord would be like. They were seeking from Paul some reassurance concerning their dead loved ones. Now, what Christian hasn't thought about that? Hmm? If you've ever buried a, a believing loved one, a family member, a friend, I'm sure that thought's crossed your mind. Where are they now? Will I ever see them again? Well, let's look at how Paul handled it. First Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. So one of the things that we're given a window into here is the emotional state of the Thessalonian church. They're in a state of bereavement. They are grieving. There's an emotionally intense time for this church. What is very interesting is how Paul goes about addressing this. He says, I don't want you to be uninformed. So what he's going to do in order to address an emotionally charged situation, a tough situation, an emotionally um, draining situation, is he's going to arm them with sound doctrine. This is how he's going to handle it. He's handling an emotional time of bereavement with sound doctrine. Now, Paul had an antipathy towards ignorance. Ignorance is the great bane of Christian existence. On no less than eight occasions in his letters, Paul traces many problems of Christian faith and life back to ignorance. And he regards knowledge as a key to many blessings. I don't want you to be uninformed. That kind of thing occurs time and again in Paul's Letters. So he tends to this emotional problem in this particular church by arming them with sound doctrine. Paul's reference to those who are asleep is not a reference to soul sleep, as some have suggested over the centuries. Soul sleep teaches that when believers die, they go into a state of unconscious existence, and the next conscious moment they have is when Christ returns and they're raised to new life. But there are so many other passages of scripture that teach conscious existence after death. So this idea of soul sleep has never gained much traction in the church. So for believers to fall asleep is euphemistically a reference to death. Jesus used it with Lazarus. And it seemed to have been widely used by the early Christians in a way to demonstrate how death is temporary. The imagery of death as sleep is encouraging. So because this death is temporary, because they're sleeping, believers are not to grieve like outsiders, like those who have no hope. Now, notice he's not forbidding grief altogether, but he does say our grief ought to be tempered. Our grief ought to be minimized due to the hope we have. Well, what hope is that? Verse 14 For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So he's saying our grief ought to be tempered, ought to be minimized, because we know one who went into the grave and came out again. Now this is not speculative notion. Paul says we believe, not we think or we're fairly certain. We believe. This is the anchor for the hope. This is the anchor for the hope. 
Then Paul says God will bring with those, with him, those who have fallen asleep. That is because the father did not abandon Jesus to the grave, neither will he abandon the believer to the grave. He will not abandon you, Christian, to the grave. Why? Because we're united to Christ. His death was our death. His resurrection is our resurrection. So for the Christian, you can take a step back and you can say, for the Christian, death is to fall asleep in the arms of Jesus and to wake up and realize you're home. Verse 15, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So if you piece this together, you realize the Thessalonian believers had this thing circulating about them where they thought the living would have the advantage in in the Lord's return. That somehow their dead friends, their dead loved ones would, would miss out on this royal and triumphant return. But Paul is saying the dead in Christ will not be excluded from the grand celebration, but in fact will have actually a place of honor. The phrase, the coming of the Lord, is a technical term, parousia, in parlance we sometimes hear it said as parousia. The term was used in numerous other contexts within the first century world. In in those instances, the parousia was an event where some sort of official dignitary, often the emperor, would visit a city. And the parousia was an event of great pomp with Magnificent celebrations and rich banquets, speeches, games, statues dedicated, arches and buildings constructed. Money was often minted at these events. The return of Jesus, that's the term Paul uses. The return of Jesus is going to be a cosmic festival. Verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, And with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. This is a noisy verse. Three descriptors are used to picture the parousia, the return of Jesus. A cry of command, the voice of an archangel, the sound, the trumpet of God. What are they all announcing? We're not sure. Maybe it's announcing the return of Christ. Maybe it's It's uh, announcing that the dead in Christ should rise. We're not sure. The trumpet, the reference to the trumpet, trumpets in the first century, not primarily musical instruments, you might be interested to know. They They found their place primarily in military exercises, cultic events, funeral processions. So it was a signal more than it was a musical instrument. You piece these three things together and realize the return of Jesus is hardly a secretive event. It's public, visible, audible, unignorable. Then Paul says the dead in Christ will rise first. We looked at this at Easter, 1 Corinthians 15. Paul spells out details about the nature of our resurrection bodies. This is what he's saying. This is the moment. Just as Christ was raised physically from the dead, so too will believers be raised physically from the dead. And the dead in Christ will rise first and be the first to meet Jesus. 
Verse 17, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. So believers who are alive at the time of Christ's return will be caught up together with Jesus and believers who've been raised from the dead and all will assemble in the air never to be separated again. This word to meet was almost a technical term that described the custom of, of sending out a delegation outside the city to receive a dignitary who was on his way into town in order to begin the Perusia celebration. In Acts 28 verse 15, Luke uses this word in his description of the way a delegation of Christians from Rome went out to receive Paul and his companions when he approached the imperial city. The customary procedure was for the delegation to return to the city as an escort for the visiting dignitaries. And since no other details are listed at this point, it's likely the Thessalonians would have assumed that this is how it's going to work out when Jesus comes back. We will meet the Lord in the air. We'll escort him to this earth and we'll be with him forever. Now we will quibble about the how depending on how you work out your eschatology, about details. But when the text says, we will be with the Lord forever, what else do you really need to know? I'm fine with how the other details shake out. As long as this is the case, that I'm with the Lord forever, I'm good with everything else. Verse 18, therefore encourage one another with these words. Now let's, Let's be reminded of why they needed encouragement. Why did they need encouragement? The death of Christian friends and loved ones. The return of Christ was to be a primary message used to encourage believers over the loss of Christian loved ones. Now in chapter 5, Paul keeps talking about the return of Christ, but he shifts the camera angle. He shifts to a slightly different question, and that is, when will Jesus return, and how exactly do we wait for it? To this point, he's been saying, it's going to happen. Here's a little bit about what it's going to be like, but let me tell you about how you wait for it and address this question of when. Verse 1, now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. So they've got questions in addition to the one they've already asked. What about my believing loved ones? What about the return of Christ? They've got other questions. When is this going to take place? Paul's response is, is, is somewhat humorous. He says, you don't need to know that. I appreciate the question, but you don't need an answer to it. Nobody needs to know that. You just simply need to be prepared. And then he uses two images to describe the suddenness of the return. On the one hand, it's going to come like a thief in the night. On the other, it's going to come on you like labor pains. The thief in the night is unexpected. Labor pains are expected. Both are sudden and without warning. 
when you put those things together, you realize there is not a date setter out there who will be able to take away the suddenness of the coming of Christ. You got that? There isn't a date setter out there. I don't care who you are. There is not a date setter out there that can be able to take away the suddenness of the return of Christ. While Christians ought not be caught off guard, everyone else will be, he says. Others will be resting in their peace and their security. It's just another day. It's just another day when the day of the Lord will come upon them with suddenness and inevitability. Verse 4, but you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. So he's saying, Christian, better not be surprised by this. When you hear the voices, when you hear the trumpet, you better not be surprised. Why? Because we're not in darkness. Thieves come at night, you're asleep, you're groggy, you're not alert. That better not be your condition when Jesus comes back. What does it mean that believers are not in darkness? I think he answers it in verse 5. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. In other places, Paul refers to this present world as a place of darkness. Out of which Christians, the believer, have been transferred into the kingdom of light. Since believers have come into the light of Christ, God's wrath is no longer a future reality and the coming of Christ ought to be a conscious awareness. Verse six, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. So now he's playing with this imagery of sleep. It can get tricky as you read through this. He just talked about sleep in the previous section, referred to it though as death, but the word that's used here is different. The one he uses here is sometimes used of moral indifference. It's the condition uh, natural to the enemies of Christ, for they belong to the night. By contrast, Christians are exhorted to be alert and self-controlled. To be alert is to be mentally alert and watchful for the coming of the Lord. While to be sober or self-controlled is, is used in other places to condemn all sorts of acts of excess. Excess, excess. So one of the ways that we demonstrate we're staying alert for the return of Christ is we avoid storing up. Living generous lives could be an implication of Paul's words here. The way you stay sober for the return of Christ is you don't live in excess, or you could say you better be packing lightly and traveling lightly. Verse 7, for those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk are drunk at night. Those who live like this are not going to be ready for the day of the Lord. And because of their condition, the day of the Lord comes upon them like a thief in the night. Now, this reference to being drunk need not be taken exclusively, literally. It could be simply a reference to the opposite of being sober. In other words, indulging in excess on numerous fronts is a sign that one is not in the light. Indulging in excess on numerous fronts is a sign one is not ready for the return of Christ. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, 
having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. So here we meet the great triad of faith, love, and hope. Paul shifts the order around in different places depending on what the theme is that he's attempting to drive home. I think hope is put last here because that's the big idea here. He's wanting the Thessalonians to find hope in the return of Christ. Hope, by the way, in the Bible is different than we typically refer to it today. Hope in the scriptures is confident expectation of something good. We don't use it that way all that often. We pull out the confident part. Both the breastplate and the helmet were defensive armaments designed for protection. So Paul's saying faith, love, hope can be used as defensive armaments, warding off temptations to excess. It gets you to lift your eyes towards the horizon rather than on the immediate. Verse 9, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. So up to this point, Paul's teaching is focused on the differences between the character of Christians and the character of unbelievers in the time before the coming of the Lord. The unconverted are not alert to the coming of Jesus, nor are they committed to avoiding excess, but believers who are of the day keep themselves mentally alert. They pack lightly, travel lightly. They keep themselves avoiding all kinds of excess. But verse 9 focuses the shift. Now Paul explains the destiny of the two groups. One will suffer divine wrath, while the other will be saved from it. In fact, one of the things that gave salvation such a full meaning for the New Testament Christians is that they were sure of the wrath of God and they had a deep gratitude to Christ for saving them from it. Verse 10 is a little bit tricky because Paul employs the same imagery he did in verses 6 and 7 where to be awake is to be a believer but to be asleep is to be an outsider. Here the sense is entirely different. Paul's not saying that all people, whether or not they are believers, live together with him. This kind of universalism is foreign to Paul's thought. Rather, it harkens back to chapter 4, verses 13 through 15, where those who are asleep are the dead in Christ who will be resurrected. Those who are awake or living believers and and those who are asleep are, are dead believers in Christ. Verse 11, therefore encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. So this section ends the very same way the section chapter four ended. Encourage one another, encourage one another, encourage one another. How? With these words, with this message, with this truth. Now I know people have all sorts of questions about the great tribulation, the rapture, the antichrist, and all the other stuff. My concern today is not to teach topics, but to teach a text. Keep in mind, if you were among the Thessalonian believers in the first century to whom Paul writes this, this is all you had. And God thought it sufficient. It's all you need to know. 
When you back up from this text and take a 30,000 foot view, it does have some remarkable truths to teach about the coming of Christ that ought to be of great encouragement to us. One of the things that this says is that Jesus' return will be personal. That is, the, the very Jesus who died and rose again is coming back. Not some angel or archangel or some personification of Jesus. The actual Jesus is coming back. The text teaches us Jesus' return will be visible. You're not going to miss it. This text teaches us Jesus' return will be universal. It's not going to happen in obscurity where only a couple people notice. The text teaches us Jesus' return will be glorious. He'll return accompanied by a loud command, the voice of an archangel, the trumpet of God. Be careful about going beyond this. Did you notice, though, why Paul teaches the church in Thessalonica about the return of Christ? Why did he do it? It was not to satisfy idle curiosity. This was not stump the apostle. This was not to satisfy idle curiosity. That's not why he's teaching them about the return of Christ. He taught the return of Christ for practical reasons. In particular, to bring us comfort and challenge. So let's reflect on that. Two settings in which to use the teaching on the return of Christ. Two settings. Comfort and challenge. Okay. Two settings in which to use, make use of the return of Christ. Comfort and challenge. First is comfort. In chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, the two topics that Paul marries together are the death of believers with the return of Christ. Okay. Bring those two things together for a minute. The death of believers and the return of Christ. He brings those two together. I'm well aware of Job's miserable comforters. We can be lousy at coming alongside those who are grieving the loss of loved ones. We do need to be prayerfully sensitive. But that doesn't mean bereavement automatically makes a mourner infallible. Mourners are sinners too. And sometimes we need scripture to teach us how to grieve. Dare I say, sometimes we need scripture to correct how we grieve. And sometimes as comforters, we need to operate according to the gauges of scripture more so than the gauge of the mourner. Paul gets done talking about the second coming of Christ and in verse 18 says, encourage one another with these words. They are in a state of bereavement. They are mourning. They are grieving. And he says, here's how I want you to handle that. Encourage one another with these words. What words? The words, words he just used in verses 13 through 17. In other words, I want you to encourage one another in your state of grief by talking about the return of Christ. Do we do that? Do we do that? Do we make use of the return of Christ 
when we're in a state of grief. The Christian community is meant to be a community of mutual encouragement. Without question. Mutual encouragement. We're meant to comfort one another, to console one another, to fortify one another, to encourage one another. This is what the Christian community is meant to be. How? Not with empty pats on the back. You're so great. I'm so great. We're so great. No. With these words. These words. The great truth he's been talking about is the great unbreakable solidarity of the people of God. See, the the pain of bereavement, the reason there's great pain and bereavement is because separation has occurred. Death separates us. We see our loved ones no more. We're separated from them by death. Paul understands this. This is why he's going to use the second coming as an encouragement to those grieving the separation they're experiencing. Paul is saying, look, when, I, I know you're grieving, but when Christ comes, the Lord Jesus, the dead in Christ, the living in Christ, will be united together and will be together forever. So comfort one another with that, that. The first setting to use the teaching on the return of Christ is to comfort those grieving. The second setting to use the teaching on the return of Christ is to challenge to challenge. Chapter 5, there's a slight shift from talking about the reality and the nature of Christ's second coming to how we wait for it. And if I was to sum up his teaching, I would say, be ready, act ready. Be ready, act ready. So let me introduce you to someone by the name of Secular Sam. Let me tell you a little bit about Secular Sam. Secular Sam is successful. He has a good job, nice girlfriend, beautiful home. His car is new. His health is fine. He's humorous. He's good with people. He's intelligent. Secular Sam is also a Christian. Yes, a Christian. Not just any Christian. He's, he's quite an active one. He has an evangelical background, though he has long ago left behind some of the more embarrassing and immature bits of his background. He's not a liberal theologically. He he believes in the authority of Scripture, and yet he's not really a fundamentalist. He's recovered the the cultural mandate from Genesis, so he knows that, that all of life is under the scrutiny of Scripture, not just religion, but business, philosophy, economics, and law. He's even come to see Scripture as the most satisfying explanation for all kinds of phenomena in our world, from the origin of the world to the meaning of life. Sam can confute his secular friends by historical evidence for the resurrection. He's a student of Scripture, and he seems to have a a moral bearing, which if the truth were known, would be the envy of many of his more thoughtful friends. 
But in spite of all of this, Sam is profoundly secular. You say, how can that be? It doesn't sound secular to me. He's secular in this sense. He expects to wake up in his bed tomorrow morning. That's what makes him secular. He assumes tomorrow will be just like today. What makes him secular is he is not ready for the return of Jesus. Are you? On the whole, the American church has done a decent job helping people cope with this life. But it's done a lousy job preparing people for the next. Paul uses the coming of Jesus to call believers to be ready. We are children of the light, children of the day, alert, not given to excess that chains our hopes to this fleeting world, but we pack lightly and we travel lightly. So what hopes for this world do you need to let go of? What hopes do you have for this world you need to let go of? Ernest Shackleton is a name many of you are familiar with. He was the great polar explorer and leader of men. In November of 1915, his ship, the Endurance, was crushed by the pack ice and sank. He and his crew of 27 camped on the drifting ice pack for five long months. When the ice flow began to break up, they had to take their, to their lifeboats. They had three of them. One week later, they landed on the uninhabited island of Elephant Island in the South Shetlands. No sooner had they been marooned on this island that Shackleton realized that he'd have to go at once for help. So leaving 22 men in the command of Frank Wilde, Shackleton and five others set off in the James Caird, a little 20-foot fragile vessel, to sail 800 miles across the turbulent Scotia Sea to the island of South Georgia. Their experiences and adventures, including three separate attempts to reach Elephant Island under relief vessels, are an amazing tale of fortitude and perseverance. Meanwhile, for four and a half long months, Shackleton's 22 men in the command of Frank Wilde were waiting to be rescued, uncertain whether anybody would ever come to rescue them. By the end of their ordeal, they were suffering from frostbite, exposure, and hunger. Shackleton wrote, 
Wilde had held the party together for four and a half months and kept hope alive in their hearts. How did he do it? How did Frank Wilde manage to maintain the morale of 22 marooned men? Here's how he did it. Every morning, every morning, he packed up his own kit in cheerful anticipation of the promised rescue and the return of Shackleton. He would turn to his buddies and he would say, roll up your sleeping bags, boys. The boss may come today. Every morning, four and a half months. So it is, you and I need to say to one another, roll up your sleeping bags, sisters and brothers. The boss may be back today. Let's pray. Sovereign God, the return of your son Jesus is a promise you want us to know well. It is the reason we can grieve with hope. For one day, Jesus will appear visibly, universally, unmistakably, with a loud command, the voice of the archangel, and your trumpet call. And your people will be brought to him, and we will dwell together forever. God, I pray we will be ready for that day where we have chained our hopes to this life, break us free, where we have been lulled into a state of complacency that assumes every day is going to be just like the one before it. Make us alert. Free us from excess. Lord, help us to encourage, comfort, and challenge each other with these words. And we join with the Apostle John. And we ask, we plead, yes, 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 Jesus, Jesus, please come quickly. It's in your name we pray these things. Amen.